You're listening to Felony Podcast with your host, Dave Dahl, on the Startup Radio Network. The Felony Podcast explores ex-felons that have gone on to launch their own startups. We explore the ups, the downs, the behind-the-bar stories with these founders. Felony Podcast airs every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. My name is Mark Grimes, co-founder of Startup Radio Network. Also with us in the studio, Dave's partner in crime, Lad Justison. And here's a man with a plan, leader of the band, buff and tanned, Dave, the killer bread man, doll. Hey, who wrote that, man? That's really good. <laughs> that was pretty good. Hey, uh, welcome to the Felony Inc. podcast once again, coming to you live from downtown Portland, Oregon at StartupRadioNetwork.com or pre-recorded on your phone's podcast app. I'm your host. I'm your host. I'm your host. What's Dave a coast? <laughs> I'm your host, Dave Dahl, creator and co-founder of Dave's Killer Bread. On Felony Inc., we share inspiring stories that prove your past doesn't dictate your future. By practicing the right principles and working very hard, you can transform your life. Our guests prove this again and again, once in, um, again and again. As usual, joining me here in the studio is my old prison pal, Lad Justison. Hey, Lad. What's happening, Big D? You know, Lad uh, actually used his second chance in life to become the master of mediocrity. I do, and I'm good at it. Yeah. Today we are going to talk about Oregon Justice Resource Center with Trevor Walraven, who's the Director of Public Education and Outreach. He's a formerly incarcerated youth offender who served almost 18 years in correctional facilities starting at age 14, early bloomer. In February 2016, Trevor successfully proved outstanding rehabilitation and reformation under Oregon's Second Look statute. He was the second juvenile lifer to be released under Second Look. While incarcerated, Trevor was the youngest elected president of the Oregon State Penitentiary Lifers Unlimited Club. He led Oregon's Inside Out Think Tank, which trains Oregon professors to teach Inside Out around the globe. Since his release, Trevor has spoken at many Oregon's, many of Oregon's institutions, including universities, correctional facilities, and advocacy organizations about the experience growing up in the state's criminal justice system. What do you think of that, lad? That is totally impressive. But you know what, Dave, before we get to Trevor, mm -hmm. I would like you to kind of give us a little rundown on this podcast that's going to be coming out. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, on July 1st, they're going to release my the episode of my interview with Guy Raz um, of NPR, who does this show, this podcast called um, How I Built This, and he interviews entrepreneurs. I, I believe I'll be the first ex-felon entrepreneur on the show. So... Um, that's coming out July 1st, and I'm kind of excited about it. I yeah. can't wait to see Me what, too. I, what I said. Because <laughs> it was like a four-hour interview. It was supposed to be like two, and it went on and on and on, and who knows what I said. You know, I probably got off. 
You did. So, I'm sure you did. You probably always, you always do that, of course. You know, uh, yeah. you're an open book. Yeah. And when people start getting into your head a little bit, um, you know, things start happening. You open up and all of a sudden you put your foot in your mouth. I bet that guy was a good interviewer too, right? Oh, yeah. Super yeah, that's probably, pro dude. That's probably why, you know, he really pulled it out of me too. Right. Didn't, didn't we get a sample of it? Didn't I hear a little bit of no, it? No, no. Not this oh, one? Oh, no. Look at this. Well, we got our we got our sometime co-host Mark Gailey, you know, making faces. He he doesn't even really look fully alive. He doesn't. What happened? Walking to him? Dead. He's, anyway. he's portraying the Walking Dead. That's what he, he looks like. He is not looking all that good. I hope he's listening right now. <laughs> so um, anyway, I guess we'll get to our guest, Mr. Trevor Wallribbon. How you doing, man? Good. Good morning, and thanks for having me. It's good to have you. Um, I I tried to do a little research on you this morning, but I was a little short on time. So um, can you just give us a quick rundown of what you do and what your organization is about? Sure. So last year, I co-founded the Oregon Youth Justice Project underneath the umbrella of the Oregon Justice Resource Center. And I did that with a couple of colleagues of mine, really all geared towards supporting young, violent uh, youth who committed crimes or were convicted of committing crimes when they were kids and really look at advocating around that population. So the Youth Justice Project, I do a lot of public education, a lot of speaking uh, in this state particularly as well as in other states, um, a lot of conversation around the juvenile life without parole population. Uh, a lot of engaging with folks really in all areas um, of the criminal justice system as well as college students and citizens, folks interested in the topic or folks that are willing to in listen. Um, and then we do litigation support through one of the other co-founders and the third co-founder does a lot of parole prep. So individuals who, again, committed their crimes when they were very young and have to go through the parole process and how to, you know, think back on decades, oftentimes um, previous and, and how to engage a parole board that is ultimately determining whether or not to consider giving you an opportunity. Um, so really processing through kind of how they've traversed incarceration in life and who they are today as opposed to who they were when they were kids. You probably have quite a few people uh, make parole, huh? Certainly tried to, um, as you know, certainly as president of the Lifers Club um, for my last five years of incarceration at OSP, uh, working with that population specifically and, and helping share my own experiences as well as working with guys on a deeper level. Um, Speaking of which, uh, why don't we cover your story to the extent that you would like to today? Um, can you give us a, you know, a rundown of how you got to where you're at today? Sure. Uh, so, born and raised here in Oregon, um, grew up in very remote Southern Oregon location. Family moved from LA and wanted to get away from kind of the big city and, and really took it to the extreme. Uh, in a lot of ways, grew up on 52 acres of forest land surrounded by BLM and homeschooled for most of my early childhood. Uh, I have a brother who's four and a half years older than I am, technically a half brother. We have the same mom, different dads. Uh, and he was raised by my dad since he was three. So since I've been born, he's been my brother and, and we've, you know, moved through life accordingly. 
and really when he hit like 15, 16 and kind of wanted those freedoms that come with having a driver's license and wanted to go to school and play sports and all those kinds of things, basically have a peer group, um, I wanted to do the same things and kind of fell in, in pace with that. And as part of growing up and being mature for my age, based in part around the population that I grew up with, which was always adults or at least four years older than me. Um, when my brother started experimenting with drugs and alcohol, I did the same thing, but four and a half years his junior. So, so you I, were how old at this point? Uh, so I used methamphetamines and weed and pretty much everything else starting when I was 12 years old and was a pretty regular user by the time I was 13. Yeah. Uh, and being in a group where I was you know, 12, 13, 14 years old and you're hanging around older teenagers, guys in their early 20s, and it comes out that you're as young as you are, um, there's definitely some rejection that takes yeah. place. Oh, and yeah. for me, that was a threat to what I wanted. I wanted my place in that community. Um, and so I, you know, I already had gravitated toward just criminality and thinking that kind of lifestyle was something the, that I wanted. You feel, you know, at that age and uh, later ages, you, you can, you can see that easy power grab. Yeah. Everybody wants to grab that power, right? You bet. Yep. And so for me, the way that I felt like I could solidify my place ultimately was earning respect through fear. And that led me, uh, among other choices, to rob and kill an innocent man who I'd never met before when I was 14 years old. Um, so I did a carjacking. So you were you were pretty stone cold at 14. I was. I was at a place in my life where I didn't really think I was going to see my 30s um, and didn't know that I'd make it too far into my 20s, if at all. Uh, I remember some of like my mindset was that at 14, I thought I was too young to mainline methamphetamines. But I figured when I hit 15, that would be okay. Like, that was all right. And thinking back to that, every obviously, year, it's... Every year is a lot, a lot of time back then. Yeah, you bet. that age. Yep. So, and also just didn't, again, with not thinking that I was going to make it that long, um, didn't, you know, didn't value my own life, much less the lives of those around me. And um, so made some, just some really horrific decisions. Um, I, I totally remember feeling that way too. And it was a little, I was a little older by the time I got to that point, but yeah, um, I remember feeling that, you know, that's, what do I have to lose mm -hmm. kind of thing. Well, you know, back then life sucked. Yeah. And anything that could make it a little bit more exciting. Was, well, it, it's like for us, it sucked. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't suck for everybody. No. And, you know, as we know now, you know, you choose you know, whether it sucks or not. You can make that, you can make that happen. So anyway, so go, go on. Where, what happened next? So my brother and I ended up driving around the vehicle. When we got back, we came up to Eugene um, from Southern Oregon. When we got back into town, it was made apparent to us that we were both being looked for in connection with a missing person. Um, so we went in and talked to the police, told them a lie, um, and well, ultimately were arrested the next day. I was charged with aggravated murder at 14. My brother was charged with measure 11 felony murder. He was 18. Did somebody uh, tell on you, or did, or did you, they, how, did, how did they figure it out? I told on myself in many ways, um, and I, I, I told someone during the trip to Eugene um, that I had done some really bad things to get the vehicle. And you were probably feeling some guilt, were you? 
You know, honestly, I was really jaded to the whole situation. I was still very much embodying that kind of persona and desire Hard, to be hardcore gangster. You bet. Yep. Yeah. Um, that was very much my mindset. Mm. And even even upon incarceration and conviction, I didn't take responsibility for my actions for over a decade. Um, and there's reasons for that. None of them are justifiable, and I don't wish to minimize anything that no, I've I done. No, I think what you're doing is very honest. I think what you're saying is honest. It's true. If you say anything else, then you're then you're doing yourself and everyone else a uh, disservice. Yeah, I think. Yep. Because at this point, what that's all we really have is honesty. Is our honesty and our story as it is. And if we can face it, face it hardcore, real, down to earth, you know, I think that's where we start. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, as I've grown and developed and understood my actions, um, you know, recognizing how I perpetuated the harm that I initially committed by not taking responsibility for so long, and also being connected to the criminal justice system in the ways that I am, acknowledging how that's oftentimes inherent of our system because if you give that up you often lose any leverage that you have in the criminal justice system and yeah. so it's so complicated yes. because kids especially i mean everybody but kids especially like need to be able to take responsibility and process through that but it's not always it's counter it's counter criminal i mean the, the criminal thinking you have, once you get once you're a criminal, once you know you're a criminal, and so you think like a criminal, and that's how you survive too. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, and incarceration is not a place where you typically want to be vulnerable. No. <laughs> so. But that of, was the best thing that ever happened to me was vulnerability. Yeah. So yeah, go ahead. Same here. Yeah, yeah, cool. So Trevor, you know when you said you didn't take you know accountability till ten years later, mm-hmm. what what led to that moment? You know, of course, when you. That was, must have been your vulnerable moment. It was one of them. Yeah. Um, what I oftentimes attribute to really the start or that aha moment, that uh, that initial one, was I took a uh, inside out class, and having grown up inside in so many ways and being raised in that system and going into a space where you have 10 to 15 college students that you're sharing class over 10 weeks with, um, with 10 to 15 guys that are incarcerated along with you and being talked to on first name basis, not being allowed to kind of share other information, um, per the program, which is completely understandable. Um, but also just not having a group of students who don't know what you're in prison for, um, which is another kind of policy of that program. And uh, as you both know, when you're inside, like there's a pecking order and everybody knows who you are and, and what you're about and what you're there for. So to be in a space where you're ultimately around peers and for me in a, in a group of peers where I didn't think that I could rise to their level because here they are college students um, and, you know, bachelor college students. I mean, they're in their third and fourth years. Mm-hmm. So recognizing that I could learn alongside of them. Did some of them want to be mentors? No. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, as they move through their career, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, you know, those in classes are usually somehow tied to the criminal justice system. So this was a sociology class. Yeah. Um, but the, the professor towards the end of the class, and again, this was contextual to the class, but she said, once you know, you owe. And it was, again, based yeah. on what you've learned. You understand some things about sociology, yep, and you have a responsibility. And that just clicked for me in a different kind of way, and it meant something different to me. Mm. So shortly thereafter, I... I've never heard that, but I like it. Yeah. That Once you know, phrase. you owe. Yeah. Yep. 
Um, and that, you know, very much shifted my trajectory, getting involved with uh, the Lifers Club in a deeper way. I'd been a member since I arrived, arrived there. Um, but coming into the executive body position uh, and really being in a position of advocacy for that population, which elected me to serve their best interests ultimately. Um, and through that, and I took a class called nonviolent communications, which in many ways taught me empathy, something that I had not really engaged with. I'm just naturally a pretty logical thinker. Um, but, you know, being able to tie into the emotional side and then having that space that allowed for vulnerability and having those deeper conversations was kind of the next step of my transition. So at first, at first you, you had no vulnerability. You, you didn't really... Although you probably, you, in some ways, you were preparing yourself for that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I was making the right choices leading up to that in terms of, you know, living a life where I wasn't hurting other people. Mm -hmm. I was, part of what I recognized early in my incarceration was that if I didn't seek out opportunities for responsibility, I wouldn't mature at the same rate most people do. Because when you're incarcerated, all of those things are taken away from you. Yeah. So you don't have to think about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. So recognizing that and kind of recognizing that, like, that's part of how you mature. And when you're out in the community, you get a job, you go to, you know, higher education, whatever that looks like, you end up incurring responsibilities, whether it's paying rent or having a phone bill to pay. And without those things, like, you have to seek those opportunities out so that you can continue to grow and mature so that you don't step out yeah. of prison. And that's what, you know, that's really what rehabilitation is, is about, you know, because... I mean, I didn't, I wasn't interested in any of that stuff. I went to prison four times, you know, um, and all I wanted to learn was how to be a better criminal for the first three times. And the fourth time it was like, okay, the first three years was breaking down. And then after that was that super vulnerable moment. When, and then boom, that uh, I wanted to learn everything. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So... And yeah. with that thought, Dave, that's a great thought. We need to go to a break and thank our sponsors, and we will. Why don't you do that, then? We'll be right back. Make it happen. CPA Dudes, where accounting is never boring. Their price is not based on time. Instead, customers decide what to pay them. They don't charge you for sending invoices, phone calls, emails, texts, or meetings. They just get the damn job done. Find them at cpadudes.com slash startupradio. Tell them Dave and Lad sent you, and we'll send you a very special surprise. Seriously, we will. Today's episode of the Felony Inc. podcast is brought to you by Publicize, a deconstructed PR subscription service which generates effective visibility for your business. Publicize handles all communications with the media and any content required to do this, such as press releases, editorial pitches, etc. And they offer a wide range of PR products and abilities out of which you can construct the PR package right for the future future of your business. Okay, so back to Trevor Wallraven um, of Oregon Youth, um, what is it? Oregon Justice Resource Center, but it, is, it has to do with youth. Um, so anyway, we were at, still, how, how do you get to where you're at today? Sure. So uh, in... 2012-ish, I reached out to the Department of Corrections asking if I could receive a second look, uh, which my legal support had told me I should be eligible for, but ultimately you got to ask. 
Um, so I made that request, and they told me that I was not. So we ended up filing a mandamus to the Oregon Supreme Court, and they responded that they either needed to set a second look hearing for me or explain in detail why they weren't going to do so. Um, so the county where I'm from set a second look hearing. Uh, that was a day and a half hearing. The burden of proof was on me. Uh, and I was also fortunate to be able to call witnesses. And really, with the burden being on me, I had 13 witnesses come forward, which were anything from professors to the Department of Corrections officials, staff. Um, again, kind of unique in the second look process. Un unlike the parole board process, you, you're not able to have the same kind of folks come forward to advocate for you. So going through that process, I had a day and a, day and a half hearing. Uh, and at the end of that hearing, the judge said that per the statute, uh, he was ordering the Department of Corrections provide him with a release plan within 45 days. So uh, I was 16 years in at that point. Um, I had asked for my second look before my 15th year per statute, but they drug their feet for over a year. Um, and that 45 days came and went, and DOC did not provide a release plan and said they didn't think they had to because they were going to appeal it. So it was another year and a half uh, before at about 9 o'clock on a Tuesday, I was called into a counselor's office and told I'd be getting out the next morning at 8 o'clock. Just out of nowhere? You kind of knew this was coming or what? I mean, I knew it was coming for a year and a half. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's one but, of those things where we knew that the law was on our side, mm -hmm. but we didn't know how long it was going to take. Right. So I, like, I knew I was getting out the next day less than 24 hours. And I mean, up until that point, I knew that it could happen at any time, but no real definition. Well, I think what's really, uh, one of the things that I really pull out of this is that you are uh, a great example that should give people hope. Because, you know, guys that are in there doing time or whatever that have hopeless situations, kind of like you kind of started with. And, of course, there's some people who say would say, you know, you kill somebody so you don't have a right to get out uh, ever. But, um, but, but the reality is that you're a person who has been able to turn it around and become a not only a a good person and, and, you know, a decent citizen, but someone who's giving back and with all the knowledge and education you've had. Yeah. So that's pretty, pretty doggone exciting. And um, did you have a question for him, Vlad? Well, you know, recently on the news here, the Northwest News, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, I heard that there is initiative going through. I'm not sure if, I'm, if it's right by saying it's an initiative. But I heard that they're trying to propose uh, this thing where any youth that goes into the prison system um, with a potential life sentence or whatever cannot be sentenced to more than 15 years. And also, it would, um, if it passes, then it would immediately release youth that have been incarcerated for more than 15 years. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, so that's Senate Bill 1008, and I'm very familiar with it. Um, there are, there's definitely some misinformation out there about it. Uh, it's not retroactive. So those who have already been convicted and sitting in prison uh, are not able to gain relief through this passage. Um, Senate Bill 1008 does five primary things. First, it mandates that no individual who commits their crime as a youth, so under the age of 18, can be sentenced to more than uh, life minimum 15. So they don't get out after serving 15 years. They simply are able to see a parole board 
um, as opposed to our current law, which allows a youth offender to be sentenced to. And that makes without. sense because that does that, that puts accountability in, uh, and everything needs accountability. Yeah, we'll and see if that rule is in effect when you went to see the parole board. If you did it, fifteen years, your accomplishments would have warranted um, a release. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so the other the other four things that it does is it does away with the automatic waiver to adult court. So right now, via Measure Eleven, uh, youth who are fifteen, sixteen, seventeen years old that are even charged with a Measure 11 fence are automatically prosecuted as an adult. And this would go back to the waiver process where if they wanted to prosecute uh, a kid as an adult, they would have to have a hearing, which is something that I went through. I went through a waiver hearing prior to be waived to adult court. Um, so it would assume youth, which is part of what we know statistically. We have nearly a quarter century of data on Measure 11. And statistically, a youth who is even convicted as an adult has a greater likelihood of committing future harm. And that increases if that youth is transferred to the adult system at some point during their time. Um, so really, it's, it's really, it's statistically in the interests of public and public safety. Yeah. And, and I mean, you're a good example of that. So I have another question related to that. So if uh, there's a juvenile, 14, 15, 16, whatever, and they're convicted uh, of a crime that you know deserves a life sentence, will they stay in the juvenile system? Yeah. So part of what we did um, as a state at the same time that we enacted Measure 11 in 1995 was we raised the age at which an individual could remain in youth custody, and that is till age 25. Um, so we did... We did another thing at the same time in 95, which is we created Oregon Youth Authority. Prior to that, DHS was who oversaw youth incarceration. Um, and OIA has come a long ways since its inception, but it really has a very different kind of approach uh, and a fundamental core that says, you know, p part of what they're rolling out right now is the positive human development program. And it's just the recognition that these are individuals who are growing and maturing and we have to help them kind of grow in the ways that we want them to develop so that they return to society in a way that they're productive. Well, um, that's a key point that um, as you were 14 years old and you did this, you were still developing not only psychologically, but even physically. Um, in your brain, you know, yep. your brain is actually developing and yep. there's still time, you know, to, to do something. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. There's more hope for a kid than there is for folks that have been around. And, and I, I have hope for everyone, but uh, I think kids are the best, you know, the, the most obvious where you can really do the most good. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, during your incarceration, you've seen, and, and we've seen it too, me and Dave, um, that some of the guys are not able to turn it around, but a majority of them do. You know, you've seen that firsthand, you know, dealing with, and then, of course, dealing with them afterwards. Mm -hmm. Now, um, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think everybody's able to turn it around, or are there some that just won't? I think everybody's able, but not everybody will. Not everybody's willing, and not you know you have to have that vulnerability moment. You have to have that aha moment, um, epiphany. You know, and if you're not open enough, open to that. You know, uh, for whatever reasons. For me, it was um, a lot of reasons, but you know, I mean, I didn't believe in myself. I thought I always had to be something I wasn't. You know, until until I found out that. 
much, you know, I just wanted to be who I am. And started bald, you know, just like a baby almost. Started over. And uh, that's a big deal in prison. You know, he put, I put a kite in the box. Um, and I said, I, was, I wrote to psych services and I asked for help, which was like telling on myself, which is literally what it was. And uh, I didn't tell him I was suicidal, but I told him I was in big, you know, I was in dire straits and they gave me medication that helped me. So, you know, that was, a trans that was the beginning of my transformation. Then I was able to go to school for drafting. I was very lucky that they had that drafting program available. And, you know, so, like you, um, what is it? Once you know, you owe. And I had such a great experience that continued on when I got out of prison. I was, you know, I learned to love my, myself and my surroundings was even okay. I even forgave the cops, the corrections officers, and moved on. And uh, I was able to get out and make, make bread and, you know, the rest is history. It was a great experience, and I still feel to this day that I have work to do to help others. So I'm sure that you know, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And part of so part of what I've learned is ultimately that you never know what situation or amount of time it's going to take someone to have that aha moment to make that transition. Um, and so I think that's where there is value to continue to support and continue to provide opportunity. Uh, and again, it may never, it never may never come to fruition. But ultimately, because not you don't for know, everyone, but no one can predict. I mean, if you can help one person transform, you're doing all right. Yeah. You know, but I think you can do a lot more than that. Well, you know, without you know, you don't want to give out your clients' names or anything. But you can you give us an example of somebody that you've actually helped and how the process worked? Sure. Um, and I mean, it comes in a lot of ways. So when I was first initially released, uh, I worked for a company called All Star Labor and Staffing. Um, and yeah, I know you're familiar. <laughs> yeah, I totally am. Um, so they, yep. <laughs> they gave me an opportunity to uh, recruit and to interview individuals who were looking for work. Um, so actually working for that company and being able to run into guys that I knew because I'd done time with them that needed work and that I knew their skill set more than an interview would teach me um, what what they were capable of and what their interests were. Right. So being able to do things like that. Um, I've also done conferences with guys that are inside that are having to make the transition from the youth system to the adult system. In fact, eight days after release, I was asked to present at the Oregon Youth Authority quarterly managers meeting. So I spoke to staff that were line staff and now an administration um, right after I got released. And I went from that meeting over to Hillcrest, which was a youth correctional facility. It's been shut down since uh, and McLaren has absorbed it. But I talked to a handful of kids that were going to have to make that transition to the adult system and just what that transition looks like, which is very, very different. Where did you do your, uh, your juvenile time at? So I did three years at McLaren and everything else was detention centers. Mm -hmm. um, so the county level as opposed to the state level. Um, so yeah, three years at McLaren from 2000 to 03. So before that was when you were in detention centers. Yep. So I, I did uh, my first eight months were at a neighboring county, and then I did 11 months in my own county when they opened their own facility. And the day after I turned 16, I was transferred to county jail because back then you didn't have the same rules and guidelines that you do now. Now you have to be 18 to be housed in an adult facility. Mm. Okay. Interesting. Well, now, before we – what we really want to do here – because we want to make sure that this program is um, 
completely understood by our by the people that are out there. You know, they can go to the website, which is, you know, what is the website? For us? For him? No, or, Oregon Youth Justice Project, um, and it's under the umbrella of the Oregon Justice Resource Center. So if you go to OregonJusticeResourceCenter.com, there's going to be a tab to click Youth Justice Project. They have several different projects, um, all related to supporting kind of populations of, of varying degrees. Okay, great. So are, are there's people that are going to want to know that. Can you tell us, uh, can you give us a kind of an overview? Because there's really quite a bit that you guys do. Yeah, there is. Um, so my primary engagement is really public speaking, interaction, interacting with folks, um, going to the Capitol and meeting with our elected officials and having conversations there, connecting with district attorneys uh, and deputy district attorneys who are also part of our elected official population as well as judges and justices. Um, it be interesting. You probably, I'd be, I'd be really curious how how that works out. It's probably, it all depends on each individual district attorney, their attitudes and and so forth. Sure. Part of what I've kind of recognized over my experiences out here is that so many of, I think, our police force, our district attorneys, uh, and even our circuit court judges, as well as many others in that field, are faced with the front end of harm. And that's really the lens that it's hard to pull away from because there's like every day they're engaged. So they have to be hard on crime. It's 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 you have a greater propensity to be. And and that doesn't mean that all of them are by any stretch of the imagination. Well, well, don't you think that there is a there's room for all these attitudes? Because, I mean, there's in order to provide accountability, maybe you go, well, understand it from this point of view Mm -hmm. and but understand it from this point of view. You know, because they're all good points of view. Absolutely. When somebody, somebody's uh, friend or, or themselves or whatever is harmed by someone, uh, when it's really traumatic and really changes somebody's life, you can't help but feel like that other person should be punished. Sure. Okay, so uh, there's these attitudes, and a district attorney is likely or, you know, tends to be more on the hard side. Yeah. And again, I think it's with that being your view, that's your lens day in and day out. I think it's harder to pull away from that. And so part of where I see the value for myself in terms of reaching out to these folks is giving them examples of people that have gone through the system, that have done horrific things, that didn't take responsibility for their actions for so long, and that are still coming back to communities based on how they've kind of gone through life and the experiences that they've had. They're coming back to the communities and being an asset rather than a detraction. Yeah. And that, and what, what again, that's hope. That's what, that's what hope uh, provides hope. Um, that there's, there's almost always a, you know, an opportunity for someone to change. And you know what? Uh, the attitude that I developed in prison, I could have done a bunch more time and have been okay. And so it's like, that's the best thing you can teach someone right. is to be free wherever you're at. Yeah. Yeah. And that was something I navigated even just kind of in the recognition that I didn't have a release date. I mean, I never had a release date until they cut me loose. So did you learn how to do your time so that you were you were in good in a good place? Absolutely. And I recognize that because even seeing the parole board didn't that doesn't equate to me getting out. Right. Um, I knew from early on in my teenage years that like, I was never just going to be released because I finished my time. I mean, I had to earn that. 
Yeah. Um, and so in that recognition, seeing that I'm in a space that I am and not knowing whether or not I would ever be released, regardless of how young I was, um, recognizing that the best move forward was to learn as much as I could throughout my time and to try and grow the community that I was in in positive ways. Um, part of the mission statement of the Lifers Unlimited Club is to improve the quality of life for those both inside and outside the prison walls. And that comes with the recognition that that's our home and we're going to live there, but also that we did horrific things that very much harmed the community in which we came from. And so we have a responsibility to give back in the ways that we can. Well, that's that's powerful, and it's, um, again, it's hopeful, you know. Go ahead. Well, you know, when you were in there, of course, you know, you mentioned that you were uh, the president of the Lifers Club. Um, how satisfying uh, was it for you in that position to see other guys get that, that aha moment? And, you know, the recognition that, you know what, I got to take responsibility, you know, for what I've done. Yeah, I mean, it was huge. Um, the NVC class that I took was a year-long class, and there was another individual in that class who chose the same um, class to come clean about their past. Uh, and it was a somewhat similar case to mine, um, but seeing them you know, kind of get to that place where they had had similar experiences to I had that I had with Inside Out, as well as you know this year-long class, and this is like nine months into the class, you kind of have this this time and place where you're you need to have those conversations and you need to have a deeper conversation with that group and you've built community with that group so it is a space that you can be vulnerable in but having had conversations both before and after that and kind of having continued dialogue even to this day um, to see where that individual has kind of moved with his life and in very similar ways to the successes that I've seen while he remains incarcerated, he's done a tremendous amount of good for the inside population as well as the outside population. Um, and again, that comes with that, that kind of recognition that, you know, part of what I believe and part of this is, is based on religious beliefs, um, is that you, I don't, I don't see myself as ever being redeemed for my actions at 14 years old. But what I do believe is I have a responsibility to live a redeeming life. So every day I need to make those choices. Um, and that that's how I move through life is that I have a deep seated responsibility to move forward in a certain kind of way. Are you a, a person of faith then? I'm not. Okay. And that, that's part of, you know, where that comes from. Yeah. Uh, and I definitely respect those who have the faith yeah. and therefore are, have a greater likelihood. I've many been times been told that I can be redeemed. Um, and I respect that, you know, entirely. For me, it's just not but the way I live my life. Logical, from your logical point of view, it just it doesn't work. Right. And, and, you know, I'm the same way. I I believe something's up, but um, that's beyond us. But uh, since I don't know what it is, uh, I don't have faith in anything except this vague principle that, yeah, I'm not, there's something going on. I'm not the top of the chain. Yeah. But, you know, lad is really on the bottom of the chain. I am, because <laughs> so. I'm a Christian. It's all. <laughs> but the thing is, you know, it's kind of ironic that my Christianity is part of the reason why I had my change, you know, in mm -hmm. life. Yeah. And the Work, fact that me and, Dave, got a different thing going on. me and Dave became friends because we were both in that part Tra of life where the we were changing. The transforming, transforming uh, point mm -hmm. where we're, we're not totally stuck in the criminal mindset. Right. So um, I still have hope for Dave that he will eventually accept <laughs> yeah. Jesus. It might work out. Yeah, after, you know, um, anyway. <laughs> Don't we have some more 
stuff to get to. All right, we'll be right back. Support for today's episode comes from our friends at Ruby Receptionists. At Ruby, they've mastered the art of turning rings into relationships. Their team of remote receptionists answer all of your calls live as if they're right there in your office. And with Ruby's mobile app, you easily control just how they screen, transfer, and take your messages. Start setting your business apart today. Visit callruby.com slash startup radio to sign up or better yet, call them at 833-861-8100 and use promo code STARTUPRUBY. Tell them Dave and Lad sent you and you get a $150 credit. Well, it says here that Youth Justice Project, and I keep mixing it up with Youth Music Project because there's something I've been involved in. The YJP takes a holistic approach to addressing the systemic, systemic flaws in Oregon's treatment of youth in the adult system. Okay, we've kind of covered that. But uh, what, what, else, what else constitutes a holistic approach? Yeah, what I would say is just looking at this from start to finish. So connecting to youth at the very beginning of them getting engaged in the criminal justice system. Sometimes that means mentorship prior to any kinds of adjudication. Um, sometimes it's folks that are reaching out that their kid hasn't gotten in trouble in any way, shape, or form, but they're concerned that they're seeing them go down that way. Um, so trying to connect with mentors and, and other resources that help kind of kids refocus. Um, and going through that whole process. So when you end up with, you know, a lengthy sentence and you're young, it's like you don't know what that looks like. You're a teenager and you got a 20-year set. Looks like forever. Exactly, yeah. And, and it kind of is. Yep. And with Measure 11, there's not a lot of incentive to do well. Um, so some of those things, you know, really engaging folks early on from the background of lived experience to be able to say, look, you know, I understand where you're at. So much of mentorship comes in into play with that because really you need someone to be able to identify with who they're interacting with. Um, so being able to look at someone and say, oh, okay, like you can relate to what I'm going through. You have some idea of what this is. It's not something that you've never had any kind of exposure to. Right. That makes a hell of a difference. As well as working with professionals that are doing this work mm -hmm. because so often our professionals in the legal community haven't been trained to work with a kid. I mean, I know like throughout my time, I had a handful of visits with my attorney prior to going to trial. And like there right. wasn't a rapport there. Well, and you had a public defender and he already gave up on you. And <laughs> well, and so much, so much of what we see now is teams that are better at building a rapport with their clients and recognize that, especially with kids, you need to visit them things often. have changed a little bit. You bet, yeah. you bet. And part of, part of what we are looking to do is continue to push that. And again, from the lived experience end, because now you have someone that says, I've been through a waiver hearing. I've been through two second looks. I've been through this process. I've been through trial. I know what this looks like. This is a way in which you can engage with your client, which will at least provide them a greater understanding of what their likely outcomes are. So they're making more informed decisions. I'm kind of curious. Um, do you have statistics at all on how this, you know, since this project has been going, um, anything like track record? No. Not, yeah, no, anecdotal. it's too early on. No anecdotal. Oh, because this is like 2016, I think, you guys got started. 2017, we got oh. started, yeah. Um, and really, we're still kind of, you know, gaining, gaining traction, if you will, mm. um, becoming more and more well-known. Um, but really, you know, having to, to make a living, 
beyond kind of the nonprofit sure. end of things. Um, so I'll, at least 40 hours of my week goes to making a living. How um, do you guys raise money? So a lot of the public speaking and engaging with folks and saying, you know, donate um, through the Umbrella at Oregon Justice Resource Center, um, looking at grant proposals, um, reaching out to community members, um, but not you know, so much of like for me, so much of this work is work that I'm going to do regardless of whether somebody's going to pay me to do it. You're passionate so, about it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm speaking. I got a half day presentation at OSU um, on Monday and my payment is a parking pass and I'll probably eat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But you get you do have a salary probably that you that's basically you're going to get that no matter what. Right. You got you're making a living, right? Yeah. But that's <laughs> not for YJP. Oh, yeah. That's not for the Youth oh, Justice Project. Really? No. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so you got another job. Yeah. So I, for a living, I work for criminal defense attorneys. That's uh, where I make a, a living. As a paralegal or something? Uh, I'm oftentimes introduced as such. I do data management. So I work primarily on capital cases and then young violent offense cases. And, and you learned all this while you're doing time. I didn't, actually. No. I stepped foot in the law library once or twice while I was incarcerated. <laughs> but somehow you got your passion going for it at some point. Yeah, you know, so much of data management and team communication, the team communication ends of things, you know, managing people. I had a crew of up to 17 um, working sometimes three shifts, uh, six and seven days a week on the inside because I poured myself into work for my first eight or so years at OSP. And so managing people and being able to have those conversations and connect in ways that kind of help us meet our goals and our outcomes. And having the lived experience then allows me to kind of work with professionals. Well, you're somewhat exceptional. Not everybody's got the aptitude to be able to do what you've done uh, in prison, but everybody's got a, they've got some sort of opportunity. Yeah. You uh, eventually, you'll make some money doing this if this, once this gets off the ground, right? Sure. And when I go out of state to speak, I get paid for that more often than when I'm in state. Right. Now, what are you going to do? What are you? Who are you speaking to at OSU? Uh, so it's actually a one-week class that is geared specifically towards incarceration and, and kind of having a full view of it. So they'll spend several days in, in Marion County at the juvenile detention and working with staff there um, to kind of see some of the different. And I'll just give a real holistic approach. Are these uh, you're teaching this to uh, um, what are they? Legal? What, what is the, sociology class? Sociology. Okay. Yep. Um, I was at a loss for words there. Um, well, we got to wrap this up. So, are there any final words, any plugs you want to get in, anything like that? Like some, you know, website. Do you want people to contact you? Do you, what, how do you? Folks are welcome to contact me if they want more information. If they go to the website, uh, Oregon Youth Justice Project, um, through the Oregon Justice Resource Center, they will be able to find contact for me. Um, it's T Wallraven at ojrc.info but that's right there on the website but that's all right there on the website and Um, so if you could just if you just google um oregon oregon justice resource center and then youth justice project okay you could probably just google youth justice project and you'll get there right yep throw oregon in there because there's some other national youth justice projects okay yeah that makes (laughs) sense that totally does well, hey, um, you've been a great guest, uh, and very you're, you're providing a lot of hope, you know. So I really appreciate what you're doing. Thanks, Trevor, and uh, I want to thank everyone, even Lad, for joining really? us this week on Pelony Inc. I'm Dave Dahl, and join us every Friday 
at 10 a.m. Pacific time at StartupRadioNetwork.com and catch previous episodes on any podcast app. If you know what's good for you, just shut up and listen. If you don't, I can't promise that we won't show up at your place late at night and make you listen. Breaking and entering lad's ass. This will be full-on breaking and listening. What do you got to say, lad? Next week, our guest. Who's our next? Our guest next week. After that statement, I, my mind has just gone blank. So <laughs> we ass. don't know who our guest is next week. You always make me think. It's going to be good, though. Trust yeah. me. Ending with my ass every week is just not the right thing. So are you going to end? Don't you have anything to say in Spanish? Well, <laughs> no, but up next is our great friends, Claudia Cardenas. You know, those great guys. I get to see them today. Yeah, they're great. All right. Thanks, Trevor. And bio con Dios. Yeah, there you go. Very good. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.